All right, today we're going to look at the issue of work. There'll be a little bit of overlap about with some of the stuff we talked about last semester in Genesis and um, the, uh, the fact that we were created to work, and we talked about that kind of stuff there. But um, I'm going to read a couple of verses that you have before you, and then we'll get started in our conversation. Um, this is from Ecclesiastes 2, 22 through 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he to, with which he toils beneath the sun? All his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. You feel like he's writing about being a college student at Stanford at this point. Um, even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. That word vanity also means frustration. Uh, Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Matthew 11.28-30 Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he'd teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the different words you have in scripture regarding this issue of work. And I pray now as we consider it and as we kind of set the schedule of our week before us and hear what you have to say about it, I pray that we would be willing to be challenged, and not on a superficial level, but at our most fundamental level about who we are as we engage in this thing called work. Dear God, I thank you that you speak to practical realities in our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need your Holy Spirit to speak through me. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Haven't been here very long, but this is like a topic, obviously... I think everybody feels, I talk about a lot with y'all, of um, just how do you relate to this idea, to this thing called work? And there's, I've encountered a lot of questions in my brief time here. Can I be a Christian and pursue excellence, right? Like there's this notion that rest is a big part of Christianity and taking time off from work. And it feels like then, well, so does that mean I have to choose between the GPA I want and maybe the GPA that I'm supposed to have if I'm a Christian? Maybe it's a little bit lower. That's a little... That might actually be true for some people. I don't know. Um, so how do I be a Christian? How do I figure out, if I'm looking at this Christianity thing from the outside, I'm skeptical about it, um, can you do it and be excellent, right? Because excellence is, is, is Stanford. It's what uh, Stanford, it's what we swim in here. It's what you're pushed towards. It's what you think about all the time. It's the standards you're held to, um, And what I want to do is, I want to actually posit this, that if we can grow into a biblical uh, view of work, that there is a huge amount of potential healing that can happen in y'all's lives as you go about your schoolwork here. Because what it feels like at this point is it feels like work is purgatory for a lot of people. We have these emotions all across the spectrum, right, all throughout the quarter about your schoolwork, right? And so, at certain times you hate your schoolwork, right? Everybody gripes about it, everybody complains about it all the time, and it's just the most you feel about it when you hate about it is it's this thing that I have to do in order to get to a, to a place of kind of success in life. It's basically an imposition on human living, right? I have to give myself to it, and I hate it. But the reality is also, at other times, we love our work, Right? Sometimes you find that you're working through whatever your major is, a problem set. Maybe you're reading and analyzing history. You're discovering the human body. 
working through literature, whatever it is, and you find from time to time that it feels like life, you know, like things are clicking, it's all making sense, it's actually beautiful to you, um, and, and your hope is that one day what you do, both at Stanford but maybe in your career, will be something that you love, and you anticipate loving it and enjoying it, and you, lie, and, and, and you hope that one day you'll be driving to work every morning to something you love to do. And so we hate it, but we also love it. We're frustrated by it, both because we hate and love work, uh, but not just because we love and hate it, also because it's time-consuming, right? Um, It's so time-consuming, and we never quite get to the place we want to be. Nobody's ever there. We all think everybody else has gotten to it, or at least some people have. We're always falling uh, short of our kind of perceived best, whatever we think our best is. And then also it's frustrating because it never stops, right? You get to midterms and you think you're going to have a breather, and you don't, you know? And um, it keeps coming. Once you finish something, and maybe even you finish it well, there's more work pressing down. Um, And all these lead to a feeling of frustration, right? And you feel like you're wearing thin underneath it. So we hate it, we love it, we're frustrated with it, and there's a tremendous amount of fear associated with work as well, right? Fear of failure, fear that uh, you'll be exposed, that you're the one person here that doesn't belong here. Um, Fear that if you don't keep feeding it, if you don't keep up, that it's going to overwhelm you, you know? Um, Everybody has, I still have this, I'm 33 years old, I've been out of uh, all of my education for six years now, and I still have the nightmare about the midterm I didn't know existed, or the final I didn't know existed. You all familiar with this? You'll have those on into life for well after you finish your academic career, so get used to it. But um, that fear is so deep that it sits in my subconscious today, and I don't have any schoolwork to do. Um, fear of mediocrity, disapproval, not being able to finish, um, that when you do finish poorly, that a verdict is passed on you, right? Um, competition, you know? Um, the reality is nobody else is going to tell you this at Stanford and I'll tell you this and be unpopular for it. Some of y'all might achieve the heights of your field and a lot of you won't. That's the reality. Not everybody's at the top of their field because only one person's at the top. So some of y'all might get there and a lot of the majority of people, guess what, aren't at the top by definition. (laughs) You know, we feel a lot of competition. And it's hard... All that to say, it's hard to know what to feel about work. It's hard to just, like, engage it emotionally and psychologically. And in some ways, what we get most comfortable doing is letting it define us. In other words, these responsibilities are heaped upon us, and we just engage them without ever thinking about them. And we're like, just hand me a ton of responsibilities so I can never get in the business of actually wondering why. Um, Work is huge. It is. You'll spend a third to a half of your life doing it. Um... Right now, it looks like schoolwork, research, internships, part-time jobs. Later, it's going to look like your career, but it's also not just your career. It's also going to be your house and your family. Work doesn't just stop uh, when you clock out. Um, and y'all are good at work. There are people in this room. All of y'all feels dumb at some point, and I'm always like, come to some of the places I've been for a semester. <laughs> Get some perspective on reality. I'm going to have to edit that out of the podcast. But... Um, <laughs> But you're at Stanford, and um, the reality is y'all are good at work, and you're actually getting better at it. You, you are very successful. You are. It's hard to get in here, and I couldn't have gotten in here. Um, 
And that's a good thing, that you're good at work. It really is. Uh, And I want to suggest that the rub and the frustration that we have with it has much less to do, and we, we talked about this a little bit last semester, it has less to do with how you're supposed to do well. You don't need answers of how to do well. You've got that. Um, how much work you have, how you're going to get it done, you don't need answers on all of that. Y'all know how to get it done. That's what you're good at. The frustration, the confusion, and the ambivalence is more about why. Why are you doing it? Why this schedule? Why these commitments? Um, and your answer to that question of why... Um, explains how you're being shaped as a person because here's something that's also happening. Your work is not just you impressing things upon creation. It's actually also working back on you. As you engage in this schedule here, it's shaping you as a person. It's, it, it also has an effect back on who you are. Um, so one of, the question, one of the most important questions is, what is your work making of you? How is it shaping you? And I think um, a very important distinction is this. Being accomplished and being virtuous are not the same thing. (coughs) Being accomplished and being virtuous are not the same thing. So you might be very accomplished. doesn't mean you're necessarily virtuous. How is your work shaping you? So here's what you're not going to get tonight. You're not going to get... Here's how to change your schedule. Um, Here are the superficial changes to get your life in order that are going to help you kind of manage, right? That's what we all want. We want time management skills. Um, I just need to get this kind of under control, right? And what I want to propose tonight is that the change that actually gives us a psychologically and spiritually and mentally healthy understanding of work, it just can't be superficial. It has to be fundamental. It has to be something deep down inside of us. I watched this TED talk, the TED talks, this guy, Nigel Marsh, who wrote these books on work-life balance. He's successful CEO in all these different fields. And he talks about how a friend read his book. So he had a midlife crisis about his work-life balance, changed the way he did it, started resting a lot, and it changed who he is. is. And a friend of his read his book and said, I was given over to work. All my relationships have failed. I made a ton of money. You know, I'm 40 and I'm unhappy and I want to get life under control. And this is what he told, this is what this guy told Nigel. He said, so I joined a gym. And so... um, and he says this, being fit while doing a 12-hour workday is not being well-adjusted. It's just being fit while you're doing a 12-hour workday. Um, and his point was this, tweaking your schedule is not the solution. Superficial changes, uh, I think, will be the result, but they are not the seeds of really grappling with this. So, yeah, it might end up shaping your work week to grapple with the fundamentals of what it means to work. But I would say those are the results. Your schedule changing are the results. Those are not the seeds of real change. Um, to answer the why question is going to deeply, your answer to the why question is going to deeply affect and really explain how you handle success, failure, demanding times, the possibility of rest, and also relationships both within your work and without. Um, so what I want to do tonight is give you just a kind of a quick biblical overview of work. Some of these things we talked about a little bit in um, the first semester when we did Genesis 1 through 3. Um, so I won't belabor those points too long, but I think they do bear repeating. And so the first thing I want to do is talk about the place of work in Scripture. And this is something we've talked about before. Maybe some of you weren't here. The Bible views work actually as fundamental to being human. Uh, in Genesis 1, God worked and crafted. 
He created, he created, he created. And as he created, what he did is he stepped back and he looked at what he created and said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And when he did that, it wasn't just simply this kind of um, empty declaration or, you know, or recognition like, oh, and by what I made was good. That language is actually the language of enjoyment. He's actually enjoying what he's produced, what he's made. And so we see God working right at the beginning, making things. And then what happens is he makes man in his image. And one of the first things we're given to is the very work which we just saw God doing, which is enculturating and making and building and taking the natural elements of the world and crafting beautiful things and giving order to it, discovering it and studying it. In Genesis 1.26, God said to Adam, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. Do the very thing that I've been doing, bring order and beauty to it. This is what y'all are doing in class. This is what engineers are doing. This is what poets are doing. This is what historians are doing. You're accumulating knowledge about it in order to craft opinions and ideas and products and services. This is the work to which man's originally called. Um, Genesis 2.15, God set man in the midst of the garden in order to work it. Um, to work and to produce is to be human. It's fundamental. That's why sometimes, that's why I've, every now and then you get those brief moments where you're working and you feel alive when things are coming together and it's making sense. Uh, there's a student at South Carolina, I remember last year, he, he came back from Christmas break a full week and a half early before anybody else came back. And he was in his apartment by himself for a week and we hung out Friday of that week after he had been by himself for five days. And I was like, man, how's it been just like being back, nobody here can do whatever you want? And he just says, it's the emptiest five days of my entire life. I feel less human than I did five days ago. And he said, I got here and I thought it was going to be awesome. I'm going to wake up, I'm, you know, go to bed late, wake up at around lunchtime, I'm going to cook whatever I want, and I'm going to play FIFA and Modern Warfare for five days. And he did it, and he was the most depressed he'd ever been in his life. Because we're made to work. We're made to work. Um... So the Bible views of work as fundamental being human. Secondly, work has value in and of itself. Last night I drove up to the city to hear the professor of Fuller Seminary um, give a talk exactly on this issue. His name's Richard Mao. And he talked about Revelation 21-24. It's amazing. From Genesis 1 all the way to the last chapter of the Bible, um, you actually see the idea of work. In Revelation 21-24, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the end, right? And it says the king's of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the way Richard Mao read it and the way all commentators read it is the glory of the kings of the earth is the stuff we've produced. It is the work of mankind. That in the new heavens and the new earth, um, there's going to be Shakespearean plays and sonnets. There's going to be YouTube music. There's going to be sound economic theory and good philosophy. There are going to be great books on parenting. There are going to be social networking sites. They're going to be beautiful and useful programming in the new heavens and the new earth. God likes the good work that people produce, and it has value in and of itself. And it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Work is good. What you've made is good. Um, humanity was tasked from the beginning with enculturating creation, the business of work, bringing dominion, uh, and bringing order to the raw material in the world. And that is just a net good in and of itself. Um, at the same time, we can't just be elitist in our view of good work. Does God love the research happening in the buildings named after all these billionaires over here? Absolutely he loves that, right? Uh, does he love the landscaping in the oval? Yeah. It's beautiful. That's beautiful God 
godly, biblical work that we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. He loves the landscaping. God loves the lawyers pursuing justice. And he loves the plumber that makes the bathrooms work at the law firm and the janitor that creates an aesthetic environment for it. All of that is good biblical work. Um, It is pleasing. The insurance agent that provides security for a family, and the surf shop guy that guides people into making right decisions for recreation, this is all good. Like, I... Is anybody, like, now dropping out as we speak? Really? Have your parents call, I don't know, Jack Doody. He can handle that. Um, uh, All of it's good. And I I would say one of the dangers and temptations at a place like Stanford is to believe that the elites are doing the important work. And uh, and that's that's a false dichotomy. There's this important work y'all are doing, and there's this lesser important work that the landscapers are doing, the people that keep the grounds clean here are doing. This campus is beautiful. God loves that. He just really does. Um, this is why Proverbs 18.9, this is why there are a lot of warnings in Scripture about not working. Proverbs 18.9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Our work is a blessing to the world. Uh, and the lazy person is instead of being a blessing, they're a net drain. Right? One who sucks out resources instead of contributes. And that's why God says, the one who doesn't work is the brother to him who destroys. Work is good, it's human, it has value in of itself. Christians and non-Christians alike are producing good things and performing good services and thinking good thoughts and discovering good and true things. And that's part of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. But we're frustrated, right? So that's the place of work. I just want to say that it is good um, in, in that simple of a term, but it's frustrated. And I want to suggest that the frustration is of, of work is actually best summarized by this psychologist, Sean Aker. And he stu- primarily studies the relationship between work and happiness, and he says this. He says, this is the problem, is that this narrative sits at the core of who we are, not just as students or as workers, but also as parents, as friends, as just the way we live human life. This is our narrative. If I work harder, I will be more successful. If I'm more successful, I'll be happier. And he's saying, that's killing people. This is a secular psychologist who says that that narrative is killing people. I want to suggest that that narrative is what's frustrated our understanding of work. If I work harder, I'll be successful. If I'm successful, I'll be happy. And what does happiness look like? Right? It can look like a number of things. Um, And and this is true of all of us, even though this is maybe the most vulgar form, wealth and lifestyle, right? One thing we've always, or I've said in REF here several times is like, stuff is awesome, and I want more of it, because I kind of think it might make me happy, right? Um, That's not very eloquent, but that's just true. We think that way. Uh, Work, we, we oftentimes can think of it as simply the lifestyle and the wealth that we can afford from it. Um... Stanford is in the middle of the wealthiest population in the world. There's no more earning, higher earning potential than the zip code y'all are in right now. And there's three zip codes around it. You know that. You came here and you knew that when you came here. Let's not pretend that that's not part of the reason that brought us here. I know there's more to it than that. But we think that, right? If I work hard enough, I'll be successful. And if I'm successful, I'll be happy because of what it can afford me. Right? It's not just wealth and lifestyle, it's also recognition from people, right? Professional prominence, the approval we get. 
whether it's from peers, whether it's from professors, whether it's from an industry, whether it's from parents, whatever it is, there's something also that seems to give us significance, right? We think we can be happy if enough people see us as successful, right? The approval of others. So wealth, approval, also just significance from success in and of itself. If I've done well, I can know I'm significant. And it never gets past that. You're not even thinking about people or money. If I've done well, I know I'm significant. And also we can actually think, uh, try to gain significance from service. Right? I've done something positive that serves the world, so I know I'm significant. Right? I'm not a net drag. I'm a world changer. And I can die knowing that I left the world better than the way I found it. Right? Which, of course, is actually still narcissistic. Because it's still, you're changing the world so you can feel better about yourself. It's no less narcissistic than the other ones. All these have the same posture towards work. If I work harder, I can be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I can be happy. My success in work is the path to life, to security, and to meaning, and to purpose. That's how I justify myself. Right? And this is both rationally and scripturally wrong. That narrative. And what that psychologist says, uh, Dr. Akers, that the problem is, and we've all experienced this, success is is constantly (coughs) redefined as soon as you're successful. Right? Because y'all have all been successful. Remember, you were really successful in high school. I hated people like y'all in high school, right? Because y'all are at the top of your class. And you got here, and what happened? The bar for success just got moved further ahead. And then you actually got there. You did well maybe your freshman year. And what happened? The bar for for success got moved further ahead. Have you noticed that you've never actually gotten there? This is secular psychologists saying, the notion if I work hard, I'll be successful and then be happy, is a lie. Because the bar for success never stops staying ahead of you. It's always beyond our reach. So actually that formula, if I work hard, I'll be successful, and if I'm successful, we'll be happy, is the path to depression and misery and insecurity. Um, We all keep believing there's an enough point. Right? There's not. There just isn't. You won't feel it at the end of this quarter, and you're not going to feel it at the end of this school year, and you're not going to feel it at graduation, because you didn't feel it after high school either. And you're not going to feel it at your wedding or when your children are born. And you're not going to feel it when you get your children off to college and college paid for. And you're not going to feel it on your deathbed. You will, have not, you will not feel like you've done enough. Because it's just not true that if you work hard enough, you'll be successful. And if you're successful, you'll be happy. Will you have enough money? Ecclesiastes 5.8. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Will you get the recognition that you want? I watched this interview by Russell Brand, the comedian. He just talked about how I got celebrity and it became immediately stale. He got the recognition he wanted in his field and it immediately became stale. You're going to get the approval, maybe, of parents, of the industry, of the community you live in. You might get the recognition. It'll immediately become stale. Will you get the sense of significance you need? It's never going to be enough. You're always going to feel like there's more to do. Are you going to leave that lasting legacy? Are you going to be the person who left the world better? The Bible even addresses that. Ecclesiastes 2, 18, 19 says this, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows if he will be wise or a fool. So you might do a good job and leave some good things. And you know what? We might trash it. 
What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils underneath his sun? All his days are full of sorrow and his, works of ex- or is, his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This is frustration. Yesterday I had coffee with a, a, a Sam Hill Road BC who's been working in Silicon Valley for the last 10 years. And he was telling me there's this, there's this just common story that every 50 to 60-year-old venture capitalist and investment guy in Silicon Valley shares with him all the time as he's gotten to know this world. He says, these guys who made their millions in the 90s are hitting their 50s and 60s now, and their marriages have crashed and their children are abandoned, even if their children happen to have lots of stuff. And these men are wildly successful and they're all saying, I'm lost. And this is what they're doing. Interestingly enough, they're turning to Jesus. Um, and actually, this is really cool. And if y'all want to talk about this afterwards, please let me know. What this guy is telling me is like, I spend time with these guys. And this community of guys who have this common story is huge in Silicon Valley. And he said, they actually want Stanford students to know this. And they want to interact with Stanford students. He and I are going to try to figure out ways for y'all to spend time with these people. If you'd like to do that, let me know. But he's like, they want to know... They want you to know they worked their tail off. They were the best. They were the brightest. They were the most creative. They took the risk, and they won big time, big time. And they gave up life and relationships and happiness in the process. They want to be successful enough to have the life and the recognition and the wealth and the honor and the significance that we want, and they got to the top. And they realized they'd missed it up. They'd missed life in the process. And so here's... One point of application right now. This is maybe the hardest. Well, this isn't the hardest one, but it's hard. Y'all need to know this is life right now. Life isn't, doesn't start when you graduate, and it doesn't start when the summer comes. This is it. Y'all, are, this is life. It's happening right now. And what happened was with these guys is they thought life will happen once I get to the top. And they got to the top, and they realized the life they wanted to happen, they destroyed on the way. Life's happening now. Life's happening tomorrow, and it's happening the next day, and it's happening on Saturday, and it's happening on Sunday and Monday next week. It doesn't start when you finish. It started a while back. Are you missing the life that's happening right now? We think that we have to work hard to be successful, and if we're successful, we're going to be happy, and it's literally the opposite. We've made work our God that we pay homage to, hoping that in return it's going to give us life and it's taking life away. Um, A writer I've been reading a little bit more recently, I quoted him last week, is a guy named David Foster Wallace, and he shared a commencement speech at Kenyon College, I think, in 2005. And this is what he said, uh, secular guy, not a Christian. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, whether it's JC, Allah, Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some intangible set of ethical principles, the advantage of that is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning of life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches 
epigrams and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll never ever uh, you'll never have power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. After he delivered three years after he delivered this commencement address, he killed himself. Um, if you worship success, you're always going to feel like a failure. You're going to live in competition with one another, and you're never going to be able to celebrate other people's success. Here's the reality about all that stuff. I'm actually not telling you anything you don't know. This is stuff, what, what, what Wallace says is true. This is stuff that's in common wisdom. It's just in the ether. It's out there in the air. And simply in hearing and knowing that work's not going to make you happy. Here's the problem. Knowing that is not actually enough to actually pry the idolatry of it out of our hands. The reality is, I just haven't said anything you haven't heard or haven't thought or haven't had the capacity of thinking. Um, and, the re- and, and just knowing all these things, it doesn't give us freedom from this cycle or this narrative, simply knowing that. And this is what has to happen. See, here's, here's the great lie of American culture, is that if we know the right things to do, we'll do the right things. Okay, we can all cite examples immediately off the top of our head of situations where we knew the right thing to do and we didn't do it. Why? Because we don't choose what to do because we know it's right. We choose what to do according to what we desire. We are primarily desirous or loving beings, not rational beings. Yes, that's even true of the guys. Guys like to blame it on the female gender, but the reality is it's true of all of us. The reason we don't always do the right thing is not because we didn't know what the right thing was. For the most part, kind of know what the right thing is. What we end up doing is what we love and what we desire. That's why I'm saying just revealing the facts of like, hey, by the way, if you make a ton of money, you're not going to be happy. You're like, yeah, I agree with that, but that's not enough to change. It's not enough to change us. Simply knowing that's not enough to change us. That's why I'm saying the changes in the way we have to approach work are, can't be superficial. Superficial changes mean nothing. Don't even waste your time. Our hearts have to be captured by something bigger than the narrative that we're stuck in. Our hearts have to be captured. We have to fall in love. That's the only way you can change. We do what we love. And we have to have a lovelier, a lovelier, more attractive vision of life and work and happiness than the narcissistic and kind of pitiful vision of work that says, work hard so you can be successful, so you can be happy. And this is the last point, the redemption of work. Um, I'll give you the biblical perspective on work, and then we'll kind of work on if it's possible for us to get there. Proverbs 16.3, commit your plans to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This is the simple simple teaching of Scripture and work. Your work is your service to the Lord. You don't work hard in order to be successful, in order to be happy. You work as service to the Lord. Colossians 3.23, which we read, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, simple caveat before we go any further. This doesn't mean that the work you're doing is meritorious, salvific work. That what, what I'm saying is, work so that God will grant you salvation, so that you will curry favor and merit with God. 
it literally, we need to back off of that for a second and, and understand really what's being talked about in these verses on work is this. Work simply to please Him because He's your dad. Work simply to please Him because He's your dad. I've used this illustration before, but I love it, and it makes me think fondly of my children and feel nostalgic, which maybe isn't always good, but I'm going to use it again tonight because I think it bears repeating. My girls are prolific artists. This is two days of art at my household. If y'all are green people, which is good, and we need more Christians that are green people, don't come to the wood house because we are like killing trees by the acre in order to produce art. Um, yeah. <laughs> they draw and they draw and they draw. Um, and they just, they just make tons of stuff and they love, when they're done, they run to me and Elizabeth to show it to them. To show it to us. Now, when they show it to us, are they showing it to me so that I will love them? Absolutely not. They know that I love them, and there's only one reason why I love them, and of course, the reason why I love them can't be shaken by how well or how poorly they produce art. I love them just because they're my daughter. It has nothing to do with their performance. It has nothing to do with their work. I love them just because they're my daughter. When they make art... Whether or not I love them has, is not even a part of the equation. When they make art and they bring it to me, they simply want to see me enjoy their art. That's all. That's what working as to the Lord really is. And here's the thing. I brought some. I wanted to show y'all. I wanted to read y'all a book by Shelby. By Shelby Wood, fruits <laughs> and vegetables. <laughs> Now, Shelby is, uh, she's kind of like from the Hebrew school of thought on reading, so <laughs> we're going this way. <laughs> Hebrews, anyways. The apple is picked by someone, it came off a tree. That's an apple. This pear was picked by someone, it was on a tree. <laughs> pear. This banana was picked by someone, it was on a tree. Banana. Just wait till we get to the, this surprising twist at the end. <laughs> this pomegranate was picked by someone. It was on a tree... No, plant. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. <laughs> this zo- zucchini was picked by someone. It was on a plant. I like this one. This broccoli's was picked by someone. It was on... Sorry, y'all don't see it over here. A bush. I like that word. Uh, this carrot was picked by someone. It came out of the ground. And here's the best part. Fruits and... This is the back cover. Fruits and vegetables by Shelby Wood, drawn by crayons, <laughs> written by Shelby Wood, also known as SWE, which is actually not even the right order for initials. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. This is, this is really appropriate for tonight. Um... This is beautiful. Let's be honest. This is bad art, and this is beautiful. No, no, no. I actually want to make this point. This is bad art, and this is beautiful. I love this. I've been to the Louvre. I love this better than anything I've seen in the Louvre. It's more precious to me. It makes my heart sing. I understand beauty and love better because of this than because of the Mona Lisa. And I've seen the Mona Lisa, right? Because my daughter made it for me make me happy. And she just produced work and said, here, Dad, look, isn't this cool? Listen, this is what your lab reports and your problem sets and your papers look like to Jesus. 
<laughs> this same kind of laughter is like happening up there. They're like, really, look at this. Look what Kaysen produced. Isn't this cute? You know? This is how they look. I'm sorry. Yes, you're at Stanford. You're elite. But yes, this is how your problem sets look to Jesus. And he loves it. This is Britain's. I, I, I'm kind of indulging myself. But I mean, pictures to look at. I mean, this is how simple it is. By Britain. Okay, I love that picture. I, abs- I don't know what's going on here. Maybe a lollipop flower. We do this all day at our house. And actually today, so somebody comes over and helps us like clean the house once a week. And um, we had this, some of y'all seen it, this massive pile of artwork um, in our pantry. And I, found, I was like, Amy, you have to go in there and you have to throw the bad stuff away because Elizabeth and I can't do it. And we- and it's just not even feasible for us to keep all of this stuff. I mean, it just keeps going. This is it. This is what we do all day in our house. Mountains. I can't throw that away. There's no way. Bed. There's no way I'm throwing this away. Heart. H-O-T. Hot. There's no way I can throw any of this stuff away. Y'all, this is work. This is what work looks like. This is a biblical view of work. It really is. And isn't that a richer way of engaging life than working hard so you can be successful, so that you can hope and be, you can be happy and never being happy? But rather, just making things you enjoy so that you can please your Father simply for pleasing Him. Not trying to earn His favor. We're not talking about salvation at this point. We're not talking about merit. We're just talking about... God just delights in the stuff you do. Man, how much richer is it? Problems that are hard, y'all's schedules are still difficult, but what I'm telling you is when something changes more fundamental in us and in our hearts and we begin to engage work this different way, man, how much richer can your experience of work be? Right? Now here's the big point. You can't do this You can't do work simply for the sheer pleasure of God unless you've experienced His grace. And this is is the big point. You can't get to this point. You can't simply produce work so that your Father enjoys it unless you've actually first experienced His grace. Because you see, we're seeking wealth and recognition and significance. We're doing this business of work because we're still trying to justify ourselves. We're working and working and working, always trying to find this sense of accomplishment or whatever it is Seeking a sense that we've acquitted ourselves well, that we've justified ourselves. And you can only work simply for the Lord's pleasure if you've instead understood that you're justified not by work, but just by grace. And see, all of a sudden, it pulls any motivation to justify yourself by work out of your life. Right? When you get that you're saved by grace and not works, you're justified and you're adopted and you're adored by the grace of God and not by works just because you're a son and daughter for the same reason that I love my children. Then you stop overworking because you stop trying to justify yourself. You You stop craving restless rest. When you get that God's grace is your Sabbath, God's grace is your rest, that there's delight in Him, that He is your rest from slavery of work, when you taste deeply of the security that He gives you, by His gracious work at the cross, and you begin to rest in that work, what happens then is you stop working to get happy. You stop working 
to get happy. Rather, because you're happy, or the biblical word for happy, because you're blessed, you work. You see, you actually work out of your blessedness and instead of in order to attain blessedness. You work out of having already had it because Jesus died for your sins, because you are secure in the Father, because you are a son or the daughter of the King, because you are restored to Him by nothing you've done but simply by grace. And then... Once you're secure in that relationship with Him, once you've experienced that grace, once he's, you finally understood, He doesn't value you because of your work, then you can start to make things for your Father to enjoy Him, and y'all can just enjoy Him together. This is going to enliven and feed the rich love that you had for your work, to love doing it for your Father. This is going to begin to dull the hatred that we have for work, because you start to see work... And you start to see the love of your father's smile. You're no longer terrorized by work's dominance. It actually removes the fear that we have regarding work because you're no longer deemed acceptable as an individual just according to your work. The perfect love of the father casts out fear. Is our work still frustrating? Yeah, the Bible actually says it is going. That's something that will continue. The world's still falling. Our work is still going to be frustrated. But that frustration won't overwhelm or define you. Shelby, believe it or not, Shelby and Britton and the girls, they know their work's not perfect. But their imperfections in their work, they don't define them or overwhelm them. You can ask them. They'll tell you. Yeah, I messed up. They know that. <coughs> but the frustration in their work doesn't overwhelm them or define them anymore because they have the secure embrace of their father. I'll conclude briefly at this point. I'm going to say... It is true that God gives us practical commands about our schedule. Um, I won't belabor this point. We talked about it in the fall term. But He actually has given us boundaries, even moral boundaries for work, of saying, like, hey, you need to work six days, but you need to rest one. And, uh, and rest is not simple inactivity. It, rest is delight. It's full. It's rich. It's where you cease from work and enjoy your Father. It's not just anxiously waiting for that rest period to be over so you can start working again. Right? The only way that you can have a rich rest is this. Is if work is not the means by which you're trying to justify yourself or the means by which you're trying to get happy. But if you are actually indeed justified by the work of Jesus on the cross and the secure pronouncement of the Father that you're His. So here's the thing. Don't run out and work harder at resting. That would be such a Stanford way to wreck this, right? I gotta work harder at resting. You know? I gotta schedule some resting in. Write it into my calendar. You know? I'll really mess that one up. Um, Don't work harder at resting. That's a waste of time. Run to Jesus. That's really how you begin to enter into work in a mature way, in a healthy way. And this is what he says in Matthew. Come to me, all you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Uh, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Does that not sound good? Simply knowing that you should rest and and simply knowing that you shouldn't be defined by work is not enough, and it's not going to help you. Meeting and finding security in Jesus and the grace of God, growing in love for Him because He first loved us, that's the path to rest. That's the path to healthy approach to work. Managing your schedule is not the path to rest. The path to the cross is the path to rest. Let's pray.